We're going to take a little bit of a detour from Malachi this morning. We'll, Lord willing, get back to Malachi 2 next week. But uh, a couple different things. I I was in Texas for a a conference at Tom Pennington's church on sanctification. And I tell you, every time I really, I preach anything, (laughs) I want to say the thing that I preach to some other people to you. Really, it's like, well, this was, you put your heart into this. I want my people to hear this. You guys are the ones that I want the the fruit of my labor to, to benefit. Uh, it's a message that I first did more than 11 years ago uh, here in Grace Life. So I think that maybe the, it's, not, it's worth you know, dusting off. Some of you were here back then, but uh, quite a few of you were here more recently than that. And also just certain events in God's providence this week made it uh, impossible for me to do the, the, the preparation that I thought I was going to have time to do. So uh, you just follow the winds of providence and here we go. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning, I'll make the observation that we love the doctrine of justification. Following in the footsteps of Martin Luther and the Reformation, we hail the doctrine of justification as that great doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It is precious to us. We, we hold it dear to our hearts because it captures the very essence of the gospel of God's grace to us, to us sinners who know that there is nothing we can do to earn our acceptance with a holy God. We know that our only hope is to be reckoned righteous on the ground of a perfect alien righteousness of Christ credited to our account by faith alone, apart from works. We love justification because our goodness and our efforts and our achievements, which we know to be insufficient, those are debased, and Christ is exalted as all in all. And we also love the doctrine of glorification. We look forward with great joy and eagerness and anticipation to that day when our struggle with sin will have reached its completion, when we will find the rest and the reward upon which we have so steadfastly fixed our hope for all these years. It brings great encouragement and sweetness to our souls to contemplate the day that we will finally see our dear Lord Jesus face to face when we will finally discover what it means to have unhindered fellowship and communion with the Savior whom we love more than anyone and anything. We look forward to the day when we'll enter into the fullness of joy and eternal pleasures that accompany being in His presence. But sometimes the doctrine of sanctification doesn't fill us with the same sense of wonder and appreciation that justification and glorification do. Now that may be because we are quickly reminded of how slowly we are progressing in the process of sanctification. To think of the doctrine of sanctification perhaps reminds us of what we ought to be but what we are not yet. It also might be because there's a great deal of confusion about the doctrine of sanctification. Christians have long debated what the role of the believer is in progressive sanctification, whether we are to be actively engaged in and pursuing holiness or whether we're to be passive, waiting faithfully for God to work holiness in us. You have folks on the one hand who say things, well, you just do everything you can and leave the rest to God. 
as if, you know, you're pretty all right on your own. You just need God to give you a little boost to make up for what you can't manage yourself. Or sometimes you'll hear, pray like a Calvinist, but work like an Arminian. Pray as if it all depended on God and work as if it all depended on you. Now, I get what they're trying to say, but it's never a good idea to pretend that something that's false is true just to manufacture a certain result. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of a better recipe for disaster in your pursuit of holiness than to adopt errant theology as the basis for your philosophy of the Christian life. But on the other hand, you have people who say things like, well, you know what your problem is, is that you're trying to live the Christian life. Say, well, yeah, I guess I am. What you really need to do is you need to let Christ live through you. You just need to let go and let God. You just need to stop striving and relax. And so confusion abounds. But if there's one doctrine that we can't afford to be confused about, it's the doctrine of sanctification. Because it's where we all live. All of us who are Christians live in between the time of our past justification and our future glorification in the present pursuit of Christ-likeness. So in order to more adequately understand the doctrine of sanctification, to gain a better grasp on the nature of the Christian's pursuit of personal holiness, I turn this morning to a text that Martin Lloyd-Jones called one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life found anywhere, one of the most pregnant statements which Paul ever made, and that is Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this key text on the believer's pursuit of holiness doesn't appear in Philippians 2 by accident. It comes on the heels of that magnificent hymn of praise which celebrates the gospel the humiliation and consequent exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there was ever a point in Scripture that we would just want to stop and sit back and just bask in the glory of what God has accomplished in the gospel, it's Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. I mean, I read this marvelous text, and I feel like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, it's good for us to be here. You know, can we just build some tents and stay here a while? One commentator captures it well. He says, We have still in our ears the celestial music, infinitely sweet and full of the great paragraph of the Incarnation, the journey of the Lord of love from glory to glory by way of the awful cross. He says, May we not now give ourselves a while wholly to reverie and feast upon the divine poetry at our leisure? Not so. The immediate sequel is that we are to be holy. We are to act in the light and wonder of so vast an act of love in the wealth and resource of so great salvation. We are, he says, to set spiritually to work. So just as Jesus didn't permit Peter and James and John to protract their time on the Mount of Transfiguration, so does Paul urge us down from the mountaintop of the gospel, 
not to leave the gospel behind, but to bring its glories with us as he sets us upon an urgent project that needs our undivided attention, our day-by-day pursuit of practical holiness. James Boyce insightfully observes that the Bible never allows us to think that meditation has achieved its purpose for us unless it results in practical application. He says, truth leads to action, and there is no value to a mountaintop experience unless it helps us to live in the valleys. The incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation of Christ are not merely abstract theological concepts that that are reserved for the theologians and the philosophers. No, Paul expects these glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ to have life-shaping, sanctifying impact on the people of God. The gospel drives sanctification just as much as it purchases justification and seals glorification. And so this morning we will observe in these two brief verses seven key truths about sanctification. Seven key truths about the nature of the Christian life and the pursuit of holiness in order that we might be more thoroughly equipped to live lives, as Paul says in Philippians 1.27, that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that first key truth about sanctification is, number one, that sanctification is linked to a perfect example. It's linked to a perfect example. Look with me at the beginning verse 12, Paul begins, so then, or your translation might have, therefore. Right away, we see that Paul is linking this new paragraph in his letter to what has come before it. And again, what is that? That's the great gospel hymn of Christ's exemplary humility and exaltation in verses 5 to 11. And you'll notice that a key word that shows up in that great hymn of praise gets repeated here in verse 12. And you see it in verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now Paul comes to verse 12 and says, So then, just as you have always obeyed, go on working out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's calling our attention to Christ's perfect example of obedience to the Father, the glorious gospel he's just finished celebrating. And he's saying, in view of our Lord's perfect example of humility and obedience in the most extreme of circumstances, and in view of the great reward and exaltation that awaits those faithful and obedient servants of God, so you also follow his example. And press on in obedience and humility, no matter how great the difficulty may be. You see, His obedience has purchased your obedience. Now, walk in the privileged position that He has purchased for you and even has modeled for you. And so our sanctification is linked to the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our example for service and for sacrificial ministry. He, the great teacher and Lord in John 13, washes the feet of His disciples. He, the Lord and Master, is among His people as the one 
who serves, Luke twenty-two, twenty-seven. 27. He's our example of generosity as the one who is rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, enjoying the lavish praise of the saints and angels in heaven, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. And then Peter tells us that he has left us an example to follow in his steps, an example of patience and of suffering for righteousness' sake. He says in 1 Peter 2 that he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." And we could go on. In every aspect of our pursuit of holiness, Jesus Christ is our model and example because He has first been our substitute and our Savior. In fact, in Romans 8.29, Paul defines the process of sanctification as becoming conformed to the image of Christ. John tells us in 1 John 2, 6 that the one who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, you may be tempted to hear that as a daunting standard, and, and you ought to hear that in, in some ways as a daunting standard. You must live as Christ, the perfect man, lived. But I would tell you to hear it as a blessing, what a blessing it is that we are not left to, to, in the dark to try to figure out the Christian life on our own. God has given us a perfect picture of what we are aiming at. Not merely in the pages of Scripture, though that would be enough. Not merely in the inimitability of the divine nature, though that would be enough. But in His Son, in the One who has assumed our own nature, the perfect man, incarnate holiness. And so if we would live a life worthy of the gospel, if we, would live, if we would make progress in our sanctification, we need only to fix our eyes on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very consummation of holiness, of faithfulness, of purity, and then follow in His footsteps. He has given us the strength by His substitution, and He has given us the example by His perfect life. And so what a gracious gift from our Father that sanctification is linked to a perfect example. The second key truth about sanctification that we learn in this text is that it is grounded in a present relationship. It's grounded in a present relationship. Look at verse 12 again. Paul writes, So then... My beloved, you whom I love. That phrase taps into the deep affection and the unique bond that Paul shared with the Philippians. You see that throughout the letter, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. 
And then at the end of the verse, even, already, even though he's already said it at the beginning of the verse, he calls them my beloved again. See, the warmth of affection and deep union between Paul and these precious friends is unmistakable. And the key thought for us is that Paul taps into this concept of relationship as he begins to exhort them to obedience. It's such a wise, pastoral, tender, sweet, even beautiful thing to do. He's about to give them a serious command. But before he does, he reassures them of his love for them. You see, this is not the indifferent directive of a cold and distant leader lording his authority over his followers. This is a heartfelt plea of a spiritual father to his spiritual children to make his joy complete by putting their hand to the plow of Christian holiness. And the glorious truth for you and me is that Paul is only following in the footsteps of his heavenly father who is our Heavenly Father as well. The Philippians are not only beloved by Paul. As believers united to Christ by faith, faith, they are also beloved by God. And you and I, as believers in the same gospel, united to the same Christ by faith, are also loved by God. And as a result, the commands that are enjoined upon us as we follow Christ are also grounded in a present relationship, the relationship that we enjoy with God through Christ by our union with Him. And so that's why in a text like Colossians 3.12, for example, Paul will write, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, not just put on that heart, but because you're already chosen from before the foundation of the world, because you are already holy, because you are already loved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see that? Because God has already set you apart unto himself, so also now you walk in that set-apartness, that holiness. His prior act of setting, him, uh, setting you apart to himself grounds and fuels your walking in a set-apart manner, in a holy manner. Our sanctification must be grounded in a present relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you were to pursue holiness in order to get into a relationship with God or in order to earn God's love, well, then you're going to spin the wheels of self-effort and you're already on the fast track to moralism, to phony holiness, to self-righteousness, uh, an external quote-unquote holiness that looks good on the outside but has no root on the inside. No, we don't try to gain God's favor by our spiritual performance. We always aim to please Him, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. But we have to remember we have already received His favor in the gospel. We fight sin and we pursue holiness because we have already been forgiven. 
not in order to get forgiven, because we already have been united to Christ by faith, not to obey in order to be united to Him, because we already are beloved. The old hymn is absolutely right. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. See, the only kind of sin whose power is broken in the lives of people is canceled sin. Sin that has already been punished in Christ and forgiven through faith. And we need to battle against sin in the strength and in the freedom of that gospel foundation. That I can be victorious over sin because Christ has already conquered sin in me by virtue of His work on the cross. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated for Christ has bled and died for my pardon. He will have what He has paid for. And so I may walk in the freedom of what He has purchased for me. Well, sanctification is linked to a perfect example and grounded in a present relationship. The third key truth that this text teaches us is that it is marked by an upright consistency. It's marked by an upright consistency. Look again at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not only when I'm with you, but even more now that I'm not with you. What's Paul after here? Well, in light of the deep affection and unique bond that Paul shared with the Philippians, while there's so much that's so good about that kind of relationship between pastor and people, Paul knew there was a potential danger as well. As much as they loved him, as much as they admired him, as much as they cared for him, there was always the temptation to rely too much on him for their spiritual growth. To think that his presence as the apostle of Christ was essential for their progress in grace. And so when he says, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he's saying, your gospel-driven pursuit of holiness cannot depend on my being with you. A life worthy of the gospel is not lived in the fear of Paul. It's lived in the fear of God. And what I want from you, my dear Philippians, is for you to work out your own salvation, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether I come and see it for myself or whether I can only hear of it by report. Your lives must be marked by an upright consistency. He doesn't want them to be dependent on His presence for their spiritual welfare. He wants their obedience to be dependent on the presence of God who is ever-present, who never leaves them, who never forsakes them, and who is not only with them, but is in fact continuously working in them, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And in the same way, friends, our lives must be marked by an upright consistency. The question the Holy Spirit is asking us through His Word is, would you speak the way that you speak and spend the time that you would spend, the way that you would spend your time if John MacArthur was with you all the time? Would you 
act the way that you do if Phil was with you all the time or another of your elders was along with you? Does your battle against sin and your pursuit of holiness slacken when you're not in the presence or under the influence of someone other than Christ himself? If so, your life is marked by inconsistency. And Paul's point is, God himself is with you. He does see. He does hear. We all live our lives before the open face of God. And so true sanctification is not a show we put on in front of respected leaders or Christian friends. We have an audience of one. And as Steve Lawson has said, if you please him, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you displease him, it doesn't matter who you please. And more than just being the greatest accountability partner that we could ever have, God is not just with us, but he is continually working in us so that we might make consistent progress in holiness. And we ought not to experience the presence of God as a, a stern taskmaster looking over our shoulders saying, be consistent, but rather as a loving father who says, I'm with you, working in you to give all the grace necessary for you to walk in what has been purchased for you. A fourth key truth about sanctification comes at the end of verse 12. Number four, sanctification is pursued by a diligent effort. It's pursued by a diligent effort. And here we come to the very heart of the passage. Look again with me at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul was not a quietist. He didn't advocate a, a passive approach to sanctification where we yield and surrender and let go and let God. That approach is often ascribed to the Keswick movement of the 19th century, so-called because of the conventions on spirituality that took place in Keswick, England. And Andrew Murray, some of you would know that name, has been described as the foremost devotional author of the Keswick movement. And, his, and in his classic book, abide in Christ, he gives us a good representation of this passive, quietistic model of sanctification. Murray says, what the believer can do of himself is altogether sinful. He must therefore cease entirely from his own doing and wait for the working of God in him. Just as in proportion as he yields himself as a truly passive instrument in the hand of God, will he be wielded of God as the active instrument of his almighty power. Now you say, now, that, that kind of sounds okay. That sounds plausible. That, that sounds good even. I mean, who wouldn't want to just sit back and wait and have holiness happen to you by divine fiat? What Murray and the others of the quietest movement were latching onto was the truth that comes in the very next verse in our text, that God is the one who works within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But it's often said that truth is like a razor's edge and error is like a wide and vast plateau. 
And in seeking to emphasize the sovereignty of God and the believer's utter dependence upon God for holiness, which is a good thing, the quietists have fallen off the razor's edge because they failed to represent the equal emphasis that Paul makes in this very text and throughout Scripture that sanctification is to be pursued by a diligent effort and that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to the way that Scripture speaks about this. One, sanctification is a pursuit. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There is a sanctification, a practical, lived-out holiness without which no one will see Christ, and we are commanded to pursue it. Two, sanctification is a fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Three, sanctification is a pressing on. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And again in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that pressing on, that's the Greek word dioko. And it means, it's translated elsewhere, to persecute. So it speaks of a hunter in pursuit of its prey. He's saying, track it down. Hunt holiness. Persecute this life that has been purchased for you. Yeah, it's not a passive idea. Number four, Paul compares our sanctification to the Olympic Games. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, he says, I buffet my body, I beat, I beat my body, and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And in Hebrews 12, 1, sanctification, number five, is described as a race. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so we can make no mistake. We are not to be passive in sanctification. The Christian life is to be marked, as one commentator said, by a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. We are to make diligent use of every God-ordained means that Scripture reveals to us to progress in holiness. You say, what do you mean, God-ordained means? What are those means of grace? What do I pursue in order to lay hold of this sanctification that's been purchased for me? Well, I've written a book about this. You can read uh, the sanctification book, the little white paperback. It's in the bookstore if you'd like it as we get uh, deep into it, but I'll just survey three of them briefly. One, we are to seek the renewing of our minds as we expose our minds to the Word of God constantly reading and meditating on the scriptures. Jesus said it plainly to his prayer in the Father, John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We are sanctified by the word of God. There is grace in the pages of scripture. As we read the scripture, as we conform our minds to what the scripture teaches us, we are sanctified. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Two, we are to seek God's face in prayer. 
relishing communion with Him and asking Him to accomplish His work of sanctification in us. The good gifts that God gives to His children, including our progress in holiness, He gives by means of our asking for them. He gives good gifts by means of our asking for them. And there's so much to be said about beholding the beauty of Christ in prayer, about seeking the face of the one who has told us, seek my face. We're also able to expose ourselves to the the preaching of the Word of God and, and participation in the corporate worship of the Lord through His gathered assembly in the fellowship of His church. So a third means would be fellowship in the church of God where the word is skillfully preached where the people of God call to him in prayer where the where the ordinances are practiced as visible representations of the gospel and where Hebrews 10 says we 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 do not forsake our own assembling together as the as is the habit of some but encouraging one another stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So how do I increase in love and good deeds as a Christian? Well, partly I'm stimulated to those things by you, by my brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you understand that's what you're doing here this morning? It's great to catch up about what the kids are doing or what vacation you just came back from or are planning on going to, but it's even better to be in one another's presence, stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And we could go on, but in all these means and more, we appropriate them always by gazing with the eyes of our heart upon the glory of the Lord Jesus, the one who is revealed in Scripture, the one we pursue in prayer, the one in whom we have fellowship with the saints. Because as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's as we behold with unveiled face the glory of the Lord that we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. How do we get transformed? We behold the glory of Christ with the eyes of our heart by faith through these various means of grace. What of Jesus' glory can I see in Scripture? What of Jesus' glory can I behold in prayer? What of Jesus' glory can I see in you? Because you are partly transformed into His image in the progress of sanctification. Well, fifth, while sanctification is pursued by a diligent effort, that diligent effort is, number five, energized by divine power. It's energized by divine power. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Literally, the one who is continually working in you is God. This notion of continual work translates the verb energeo, from which we get the English word energy, the power that energizes all our labors in the pursuit of holiness is God's divine power. Calvin calls God's powerful, energizing grace the true engine for battling sin. 
And the word God, though it would naturally occur at the last part of the sentence in the original, is thrown all the way up to the very front for a startling amount of emphasis. Paul has no desire to be misunderstood here. It is incumbent upon you, believer, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he says, don't forget for a dear moment, my dear Philippians, that in all your efforts of working out, it is God who is working in you, energizing all of those efforts. He began that good work of salvation in you, Philippians 1.6. And Paul, he says, is absolutely confident that he will bring that good work to completion. And here we learn that God is at work in you, not only at the beginning, not only at the end, but at every step of the way in between. And Scripture is just as emphatic about that truth of God's sovereign activity in in sanctification as it is about the believer's effort in sanctification. So consider these verses. As Paul brings his first letter of the Thessalonians to to a close, after saying all he'll say, he prays on their behalf, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. He He attributes the entire work of sanctification to God. And in that magnificent prayer at the end of Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Lord would grant the Ephesians, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Power in your inner man through the Spirit of God. That's God working in you. And then in the benediction of the letter to the Hebrews, which we hear so often at the end of services, The author writes, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may that God equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So in all of your efforts to put off sin and put on righteousness, the Almighty God of the universe the creator of heaven and earth is working in you with the same energizing power by which he raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. No wonder Paul commands us to work out our, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's resurrection power at work in you. Think about the sins that you've committed since you've woken up this morning. And then grasp the fact that in those moments, the ineffably holy God of the universe was so intimately involved with you that at the very moment you began to turn from those sins in repentance, it can properly be said that the holy God was working in you, working repentance in you, for his good pleasure. You wouldn't have turned at all from that sin if he hadn't been working in you. I don't have words to adequately express that truth. But which of you won't tremble at that? That you and I are men of, and women of unclean lips. And like Isaiah, who saw the holy God, we should cry out, woe is me. I am undone. My eyes have seen the king. 
at that, at that very same time, that holy, holy, holy God of the universe is dwelling in us by his spirit, working for his good pleasure. Lord, I, I would have hoped to provided you a better seat. You, d- you deserve a throne with a, a train filling the temple and the glories of heaven. And would you stoop to occupy my heart, my sinful, corrupt heart? Fear and trembling. Who, who can hear that and be flippant in your speech? Who can hear that and be undisciplined with your time? Impure in your thoughts and actions. Can you be unrighteously angry with your brothers and sisters if the God of Isaiah 6 is in you? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them one with a harlot? May it never be. Well, do you not know, believer, that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Shall we then be carefree in our attitude towards sin? Shall we be laissez-faire in our pursuit of holiness? May it never be. So far from making you kick back and relax. Oh, God's going to do it. No, God's work in you should make you blood earnest about putting to death the deeds of the body and pursuing righteousness with all your might. Some of you say, wait a minute. First you told me I need to work out my salvation. Now you're telling me God is the one working in me. Which is it? Do I work or does he work? And the answer is both. The answer is that God's working in us in no way cancels or mitigates our need to work out our salvation. In fact, his working is the ground of our working. We labor, we strive, we work out precisely because he is working in us. And without his working, our working would be impossible. See that clearly in 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me just briefly. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3 is sort of the beginning of Peter's letter proper. And he tells the believers something that is wonderful and glorious. He says, God's divine power, right, energized by divine power, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need has been furnished to us graciously by the working of God's own power. And then in verse 4, he says, We have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And so you might think, well, perfect. God gives me everything I need for godliness, for sanctification. I've escaped the world's corruption. I am going to sit back and relax and yield and surrender and wait for the magic zap. And then you run straight into verse 5. The next words, Peter says, Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and so on. You've got to grasp the way the Scripture reasons there because we don't reason that way naturally. 
You've been given everything you need. You've escaped the corruption of the world. And for that very reason, make every effort. God is working within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And for this very reason, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think about those words until they make sense. Until your heart says, oh yes, he's working, so I'm working. Not, he's working, so I don't have to work. Jonathan Edwards wrote, we are not merely passive in sanctification, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. God produces all and we act all, for that is what he produces, our own acts. God is the only proper author and fountain. We are the only proper actors. We are in different respects wholly passive, and wholly active. Now that is walking the razor's edge of truth. And that reality is everywhere in Scripture. Hear this emphasis. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I live, but not me. Christ does, but i got to do it. Paul doesn't know where he ends and Christ begins. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Colossians 1, for this purpose also, I labor striving. Well, how, Paul? How do you do that? According to his power, which mightily works within me. Romans 8, 13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. So, so I put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Not the Spirit puts death to, to death the deeds of the body for me. Not I put to death the deeds of the body by my own strength. I put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. And then 1 Peter 4.11, whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So I serve by God's strength. In all these passages, I'm living, I'm laboring, I'm striving, I'm serving. But in every case, my willing and working is energized by God's willing and working. So Grace Life, don't pit these two truths against one another and fall off the razor's edge of truth onto the plateau of error. Though sanctification is pursued by our diligent effort, our very effort is energized by divine power. That takes us quickly to key truth number six. Sanctification is measured in the affections and the actions. It's measured in the affections and the actions. Verse 13 again, God is continually working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is teaching us that God's powerful work in us for sanctification involves his working on us both internally and externally. One commentator captures that thought nicely when he says, God produces in believers both the desire to live righteously and the effective energy to do so. This means holiness is not merely a matter of performing external duties. Read your Bible, pray, go to church, sing, listen, go to Bible study, serve others. You say, wait a second, that sounds like the Christian life. Well, not necessarily. 
Plenty of people go through the motions, but they have no firm root. Repentance is not, all right, I'll agree to say that I was wrong. Repentance is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I was wrong. I need to go and make it right with everyone whom I wronged. Uh, what, what earnestness, what avenging of yourselves this godly sorrow has produced in you, 2 Corinthians 7, right? It's not just, all right, let me go on my apology tour. It's, let, I can't sit still unless I know my brother forgives me. God's work of sanctification begins internally. The text says he's working in us. Charles Hodge wrote, Sanctification doesn't consist exclusively in a series of a new kind of acts. It's making the tree good in order that the fruit may be good. You've got to make the tree good. The holy person doesn't merely do what God commands externally, though he certainly does that. The holy person first loves what God loves and then acts in keeping with that renewed heart. God inclines our hearts to treasure the glory of Christ seen in the means of grace. And when we behold him with the eyes of faith, what happens? Our minds and our affections are renewed so that we love him more and we love sin less or transform from the inside out. Before we can begin making every effort to pursue holiness, we've got to recognize we're not talking about behavior modification. Even hypocrites can train themselves to perform external duties. We're talking about heart transformation that works itself out in our actions. To be sure, we want to have sanctified affections as well as sanctified actions because God commands us not only to behave righteously, He commands us to be holy. He works in us, even at the level of internal affections and motivations to will and to work. And so holiness is not this clenched fist, gritted teeth, you know, I guess I gotta do all the things I hate and I gotta give up all the things I love. I guess that's Christianity. No, that's not Christianity. That's religion with no savior. Holiness is what the child of God loves. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's a delight for me to let go of these sins that so easily entangle because holiness is the pleasantest life there is. And that brings us to the final key truth about sanctification. Number seven, it is governed by God's perfect will. It's governed by God's perfect will. And here we come to the end of verse 13 where we learn that all of God's working in us, both to will and to work, is for his good pleasure. This is his great end. God takes such great pains in striving with his creatures through this process of progressive sanctification because it pleases him to do so. Because he delights in holiness. His goal has always been, Titus 2.14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I just want this for me. I want a holy people. His stated purpose from before the foundation of the world, Romans 8, 29 again, is to conform his people to the image of his son. He has never not been in the business of forming and shaping his people into looking exactly like Jesus. Why? 
because God the Son is the perfect image of God himself. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God of very God. He is the perfect representation of God's own holiness in human flesh. You see, friends, the pleasure of God in his own holiness is what drives him to sanctify his people. He knows, I am holy. And he says, I see my reflection of my own holiness in my son. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a bunch of people look just like him because he looks just like me. And you can be sure that he will accomplish that purpose. He has put his name upon you. The high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Isaiah 57, 15. And now he pursues the holiness of his people whom he's put his holy name on with the same passion that he has for the honor of his own name. And God is not going to let his honor fall by the wayside. Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He says, I will have my glory. We read of it in Malachi 1. I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so, friends, do you know what that means? It means that we, who struggle so mightily to look like our Father, we whose family resemblance to the family of holiness is all too faint, we are the objects of omnipotent zeal for God to get what he is worthy of in his people. Father, I can't give you what you are worthy of. I can't be what Christ deserves to have from me. My worship is so cold. My heart is so backward. My mind is so easily distracted with the things of the world. But my great sustenance and hope is that you will get what you are worthy of out of me because you love holiness more than I ever could. It makes sense then that Paul could write in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So many professing Christians drive themselves crazy trying to, what's God's will for my, wi- my life? What's God's will for my life? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this college? Should I you know, buy this car? Should I buy this house? Should I stay in Southern California? Should I move to Texas? <laughs> you should stay. <laughs> but here's God's will for your life, your sanctification, your ever-increasing holiness. And I think that we can find a great source of strength and motivation in our battle against sin if we consistently remind ourselves that that battle is governed by God's perfect will. That at any given moment in which I am fully engaged in the mortification of sin, which you who have done it know is often painful, is often emotionally wearying. You can pretend to pray, oh God, help me not sin, but to engage in the work of mortification, to lay the ax at the root of the tree, to spy out the paths in your own heart where sin grabs a hold, it's hard work. But when I'm fully engaged in working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, according to the power of God at work within me, in that moment you can know I am in the very center of God's will for my life. 
I am right where He wants me to be, pursuing Him, fleeing from sin, fleeing to Him. And that just leaves a question, a single question, is that are you in the center of His will? Is the Almighty God of the universe at work within you, directing both your desires and your actions into conformity with His good pleasure? Do you have any sense of the divine strength that energizes you to gladly and joyfully and reverently work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Friends, are you making progress in holiness? If you're outside of Christ here this morning, your answer to those questions must be no. Rather than pleasing God, all of your efforts to do good works and perform righteous deeds are an offense to God. You say, really? I mean, trying to be a good person is an offense? Yeah. Isaiah 64, 6 says that apart from Christ, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Our good works might look good when we compare them to other people's horizontal human level, but God's standard of righteousness is according to his own character, and he is perfectly holy. And so any hope of attaining righteousness by your own works is like trying to purchase a brand new car with a dirty rag. And so if you're outside of Christ, God's word to you this morning is not work out your salvation with fear and trembling, friend. You've got no salvation to work out. God's word to you this morning is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Put your trust in somebody else's works. Put your trust in somebody else's righteousness, the perfect righteousness of the God-man, the substitute who, as we heard, obeyed God perfectly in all aspects of his life, who humbled himself in obedience to death on a cross to bear the curse of God's wrath that was due to you in order that the penalty for your sin should be paid, and who rose again on the third day in triumph over sin and death. Friend, he did that precisely because you couldn't be holy enough. And so receive the gift of righteousness through Christ this morning. And then for my brothers and sisters, as you faithfully battle against sin, as you pursue holiness in your own life, be reminded of these seven key truths about sanctification. Meditate on them often. Make them the object of your contemplation. Make it so that you can turn to Philippians 2, 12, and 13 and, and take each phrase and, and remember there's a perfect example that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that you fight not as one trying to seek or not as one trying to earn God's favor, but as one who is already beloved for the sake of Christ. Pursue holiness consistently no matter who's watching because God's always watching and because he is our one true audience. Apply all diligence in the fight of faith, shunning the snare of passivism and quietism. And yet make certain that all your striving is in conscious dependence upon his power, the one who mightily works within you and energizes all your efforts in the pursuit of holiness. Don't forget that holiness aims first at the heart, which then leads to the hands, and that God is working both in you. And then rejoice in the God who takes pleasure in purifying his people, which is our greatest benefit and our greatest joy. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice 
in you, that God who takes pleasure in purifying his people, who takes pleasure in saving sinners. We are sinners, Lord. We stand yet in need of purification. Some outside of Christ stand in need of the, the great justification that puts sin to death. We who know you, who have tasted of that, the sweetness of that fountain, ask for not merely justifying grace from our Savior, but sanctifying grace from him as well. God, our, our hearts are cold. Our worship is lackluster. Our minds are distracted. We busy ourselves with things that would make heaven laugh or weep. And all we can do is fall at the feet of free grace and say, I know that my sin has been defeated. I know that the future is secure. God, be zealous to get what you are worthy of in me by purifying from me those impurities that yet remain in my unredeemed flesh. Bring to pass the great promises of the gospel. Bring the great work that you've begun to completion. Break my, the, the, my heart from this world. Loosen the, the, the chains and the grips that bind my heart to this world, knowing that to depart and be with Christ, that is very much better because there will be holiness in its consummation. There, Christ will finally get what he has paid for. There, he'll finally have for me what I owe him, and not because I've paid it back, but because his payment will have accomplished all. God, make, make Grace Church a holy people. We pray that, that the saints of Grace Life, even in particular, that you would grant your spirit in great measure, in unusual measure. Cause them to drown out the voices that speak to them about how holiness is strange or weird or nerdy or, or unflattering or boring. And let them be taken with holiness as if looking upon the face of their Savior who is holiness in all of its loveliness, all of its perfection. Again, incarnate holiness. And break the, the, the ties of sin. Divorce the heart of your people from sin. And wed the hearts of your people to Christ. There's no fruit there. There's no joy on the path of disobedience. Convince us of it every day, I ask you. In the name of Jesus, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.